Hello. Hi. You wanted to talk about uh, Keats's house near looking out on the Spanish Steps. been researching uh, his last months and particularly looking at, at his epitaph which is our theme for our um, writing prize and I came across your poem and I thought wow right. Eric Young's written poems about Keats I was, I was my dear dead friend you were the first to teach me how the dust could sing That's I right. have to say Keats was maybe my first love as a poet, um, I absolutely adored the great odes that were written in 19. I was mad about Keats as a poet, as a young poet. And then because I loved Italy and went to Italy the first time to study Italian when I was 19. And um, I was in love with the language, which I was also studying at Barnard. And, um, I went over to Italy the summer I was 19 to live in a villa in Florence and study Florentine Italian. Of course, a lot of Italian boys were part of the study. I went down to Rome on the train by myself to look at Keats's house. And I wrote, you know, I wrote about Keats and I wrote about the house. It was very, very meaningful to me. Also, it was very ironic because in England, they imagined that Rome was warm and sunny all the time, but Rome in the winter is freezing. <laughs> so they got to Rome, he and Severn got to Rome, and it was pretty cold, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of ironic. Severn took care of him. At that point, his consumption was really progressed. And of course, he died there. So... The whole story was very moving to me. I don't know why I was surprised to learn that you were a poet as well as a novelist. And you were a published poet before you wrote, you published your, your first novel. I published two books of poetry before Fear of Flying. Uh, the first one was called Fruits and Vegetables and it contained a lot of, a lot of surrealist poems to cantaloupes and apples and other fruits and vegetables. I wrote a poem to the onion. I wrote a poem to the apple. And they were in my first book, which came out in 71. And it created a stir for a poetry book. I mean, poetry books, you know, they disappear very quickly. But that book, because it was very feminist, it contained a poem called 17 Warnings in Search of a Feminist Poem, which was quoted a lot in the revival of feminism. Came out in 71, and my second book of poems, Half-Lives, came out in 73 in the fall of the same year that, that Fear of Flying came out. And it was also much brooded about because it was very feminist and also very sexy. Did it get lost in, the, in all of the fuss around Fear of Flying? In Is a way, a but I can tell you that many people read it or heard about it. It was reviewed in Poetry Magazine. 
Many of the poems were in Poetry Magazine. Many were in Vogue and Mademoiselle, magazines which at that time published literary stuff. You would not believe it now. But in those days, they had a couple of editors who published literary stuff. Now it's only advertising <laughs> for lipsticks <laughs> and fashion. Did you want to be a poet? Was that, was that a first literary aspiration before wanting to be a novelist? I never wanted to be a novelist. It was a complete accident. Okay. I always wanted to be a poet, but I also knew that as a woman, it would be very hard to get traction because there was so much prejudice against women writers. It's almost hard to believe that there was, but there was. Women writers were mocked as writing about their ovaries and their periods and things. I mean, if you read the early reviews of Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath, they were horribly mocked. Did that put you off wanting to be a writer? That No, not at all. I am um, an Aries woman, a middle child, and I never give up. The more difficult it is, the more determined I am. That's, that is, my personality. So the more people gave me a hard time, the more I was determined. When you think back to those first, those first books and your first poems, what, why you would write a poem is also when you would write a poem and, and what sort of things would you write a, a poem, poem about? Well, think about Keats. I, I was in love with Keats's work. I was in love with his, um, with the myth of Keats, that he wrote all these amazing odes before he died and he was about 25 years old mm. when he wrote them when i went to london the first thing i did was go to keats's house and when i went to rome the first thing i did was go to the so-called keats shelley house on the spanish steps i mean i was absolutely in love with keats he was an enormous influence on my work you remember, and in one of his letters, he said, load every rift with ore. Every line has to be memorable and gorgeous. I, I just adored him and his letters and his advice to writers and his poems. When, when did you discover him? When did you first hear about him? Or when did you start re reading him? I must have been a freshman at Barnard. I was 17, 18, and I happened to have a wonderful poetry teacher. And I was in a workshop and he was the kind of poetry teacher who also reminded you what to read <laughs> and brought books and you would immediately go out and buy them. And so you learned all about the poets who could move you along he was a marvelous teacher. With Keats, you were just saying that you fell in love with the myth as well. Was it, was it the work first and then, and then maybe Keats himself and, and, and the stories and the myths surrounding him later? It was, it was both because okay. his story is very sad. You know, he fell in love with, with a woman and then when he and Severn went to Rome because they thought it was warm and it would help his consumption. And of course they discovered, as we all discovered, that Rome can be freezing in the winter and windy and rainy.
I feel it's important to ask you of, of, of all people, do you find him a, se a sexy poet? Is he both in terms of, of the thing, the way that he wrote, but also the image you okay, have? The, the language is very sensuous. Mm. Not sexy, but sensuous. Okay. I mean, load every rift with ore. Every line should be filled with beauty, which of course is impossible. But that was an aspiration of his. You know, you can't do that always in poetry, but you can certainly try. And the fact of the matter is that Keats is eminently quotable because of the language. The language is so rich. And that was something I wanted to do in my work. And you might say that having published two books of poetry before Fear of Flying and having spent a lot of time thinking about poetry, writing poetry, what does that do for a writer? Well, it makes you aware of language and what language can do. And whether you go on being a poet or not, you have a delight in language and you bring that to whatever you write, whether fiction, nonfiction. You know, Hemingway published a book of poems before he published his first novel. And a lot of writers, D.H. Lawrence, wrote poetry first. What does it do for you as a writer? It makes you aware of what language can do, what language can do and what language can't do. And I think that's enormously important to know as a writer, even if you go on to be a novelist or nonfiction writer, you never forget how amazingly fruitful language can be if you do it right. One of the things I liked about when I read your poem, Dear, Dear Keats, was the sense of this, this man from England in the early 19th century somehow interacting with you, a young woman from New York, at a, at a point of change in, in, in her own life, aged about 31. Mm -hmm. Did he seem a, a strange and exotic figure? How, how did, did you, as, a, as an undergraduate student, in, encounter No, I, I always loved the great odes of 19. I mean, I always loved them. And then I went back and read the earlier poems. I had a very strange, at Barnard, I had a very strange professor of romantic literature. <laughs> she was quite mad, actually. She was absolutely wonderful at the beginning of the semester. And she would read the poems very, very well and then talk about them. And it seemed to me she was quite mad and she believed she had written them. But she was so great in showing you the language of the romantic poets. So great. And then she disappeared and someone took over her course. And I heard that, you know, that she was in a hospital. Romantic poetry is always associated somehow with insanity and madness. Also, that you, you were saying she thought she, she had written the poems. There is that sense of, perhaps particularly with Keats, of possession or, or ownership of those, those poems. And I get, I get that intimacy from, from your own poem about, about him. You call him a friend. Was, was that important, the, the sense that these poems were about you, they were about your experiences. Coming In the poem, I say, my dear dead friend. And I suppose that expresses how much connection I felt. 
you know, when you're young, early death seems very romantic. As you get older, you're glad you didn't kill yourself when you were 27. <laughs> but at the time, you think, oh, if I kill myself, people will read my poems and be moved. You know, the Sylvia Plath complex. And it's so ridiculous, of course, because when you're in your 20s, you don't know anything about life, but you think you do. <laughs> Was that a moment that you captured in, in Dear Keats, where you seem to be leaving that kind of period? You talk in the poem about no longer sort of craving oblivion in that, in that romantic way, which suggests that at some point you, you had craved it in, in some way. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, adolescence is very stormy and difficult. And the people who have written about adolescence always recognize that. The, the mood swings, um, the hormones, it, very, very, very discombobulating. <laughs> you know, you long for sex, but you're not allowed to have it. <laughs> you don't even know what you're longing for as an adolescent. Much confusion. And I thought that that was an important thing to speak about to write poetry about, to write fiction about. Later, when I wrote Fear of Flying, I tapped those feelings. Isadora falls in love with a completely unreliable man and follows him. I mean, it's absurd and funny and ridiculous. What's the difference for you between writing about those feelings in, in poetry and writing about them in Fear of Flying, what would cause you to, to have a, the spark of an idea and want to put it in a poem rather than see it as the beginning of a story or, or even a novel? Well, it's so different. I don't even know <laughs> how to define it. I, I always wrote both. I wrote stories and I wrote poems. And they come from a place of confusion and passion and in a way, you write in order to understand yourself. And if other people understand themselves better for reading you, that's the best thing you can do. By transcribing your own feeling in a very vivid way, you can help other people live. And when somebody writes to me and says, reading your work, comforted me and made me feel I wasn't, I wasn't a freak. I was just a human being questioning. I mean, that's the best kind of letter you can get as a writer, that in some way your work has helped people live with themselves. I think that's so marvelous. I've always thought I was a freak because I had these feelings and then I read you and I realized I wasn't a freak. That, that really is the most wonderful letter. And I get them from women, and, and, but I also get them from men. That's heartening, I think. Is that something you, that you also perhaps intuited in, in Keats who got you know, horribly treated by, by the critics both for the way he said things, but for, to some extent what, what he was saying, that the slight sense he was a sort of, he was a jumped up, son of a, a stable hand 
writing these, as you were saying, um, these incredibly sensuous poems. Perhaps Absolutely. You know, he had studied medicine, right? Surgery, which at that time is not the, was not studied the same way we study it now. He'd be doing autopsies on corpses. Imagine someone of that sensitivity studying medicine. What more can show you life and death than studying mm -hmm. medicine? He, he is a very moving character to me, not only in his poetry, but his consciousness is, is so exquisite. Did he help you as a writer? I mean, you, your own poem about him quotes lines both from his, his poetry, but, but also from his, from his letters. The letters are amazing, you know. I mean, if you're a writer, the letters are necessary information about writing. They're so important. And then his going to Rome with Severn and all those amazing drawings that Severn did of him. So we also have a picture of his face. I grew up in a family of portrait painters. I started out to be a painter and a portraitist. So that was very moving to me. his first readers he appealed to women particularly and the critics who called him effeminate and uh, sensuous and gave him a terrible time for it actually those were the very reasons that so many early readers and then later Oscar Wilde loved him did, did he speak to you in, in that way well absolutely you know as a woman writer you feel like an outcast and there's so much sexism in writing and in criticism and of course I adored Oscar Wilde, who also felt like an outcast, as did Keats. Mm. Oscar Wilde, you know, he grew up in a very literary family. His mother was a writer. So he was not an outcast, but he felt like one. How did you deal with the reviews? You've obviously been hugely praised throughout your career, but, but also caused controversy and, and provoked strong reactions the, the other way too. Did, would the examples of, of Keats spending most of his, his adult career being destroyed in the press. Right. I could understand not. that because when I started publishing, there was a resurgence of feminism, but there was also a tremendous fear of women writers. You know, feminism has gone in waves, I guess. Certainly there was feminism in the 1920s. And a lot of writers began to show themselves then. But then along comes the 50s. And the 50s is a very male chauvinist period when all the writers who are praised are very male. And women writers are always slightly outcast from the literary establishment. I think that, that in a way it's a good thing because that anger and rage at being an outcast can become part of the propulsion. There's nothing like fear to propel you <laughs> to write. So is the fear of flying, is that a way to perhaps describe your own imagination? That the, the, the word wing is, is important for you, for you as a writer. Um, it's a name of your characters. And Absolutely. So fear of flying, fear of the imagination, fear of fame. 
fear of um, being an outcast, fear of fear of everything. But it is also a propulsion. God damn it. I don't care what they say. I'm going to write what I have to say. And it's important, absolutely, to have that drive. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do something as difficult as writing if you weren't driven. Unlike Keats, you, you've had huge success and, and fame and recognition, and you've had a long career. Did attaining the thing that he wanted so, so much, the success which would have allowed him probably to get married, to, to have had a, a life, to have had a life as a writer, is it what you imagined it, it to be? Did it fulfill your um, early romantic aspirations and ambitions? Did, did it make you happy? Happy? <laughs> N no, <laughs> being a writer isn't happy, but um, satisfying on, on many levels, yes. You don't want to go to the end of your life and think, oh my God, I have these manuscripts in the attic that I've never shown anybody. You know, really very important to have done what you had to do and taken the consequences, whatever they are. Um, however hard it is when you're young, and it is very hard to go out there with stuff that you think will be criticized. But then when you do it, you learn you don't die from criticism. And you don't lose all your family because of criticism. All those things that we fear turn out not to be so awful. Whenever I've taught writing, a lot of my students have said to me through the, you know, through the course, I can't write this. My mother will hate it. My father will hate it. My sister will hate it. And I always say, never show your work in progress to any member of your family. You'll never finish it. It's got to belong to you. And later, you can make the decision whether to publish or not publish but never show it to a family member. A family member <laughs> will discourage you, you'll never write again. Have you ever made that mistake? I, I mean, I've, I've read that your, your, your sister was upset by fear of flying. Um, she was upset by it, but now we're very close okay. again. Okay. And a book is not life, and life is not a book. And there are many things, if you get over that fear, you discover what's important about writing and not important about writing. If you're going to have a point of view that's interesting, it will be exaggerated. It will be over the top. Life can, can be boring at times. Writing should not be. interviewed a lot of writers over the years but it, the, the writer's life can be a very lonely one I mean we've just lived through this extraordinary 12 months where we've all been packed into rooms and um, li living a bit like a, like like writers because of this pandemic. right it's very lonely uh, it can be very lonely I mean writing of, ne of necessity really because you can't really write with millions of people around it always amazes me that writers who started as journalists working in a newsroom with clattering typewriters and, and stuff can write anywhere. I always liked writing on trains where 
there was a kind of clatter going on yeah. and trees rushing by the window. But it was also private because people wouldn't necessarily come over to you and look over your shoulder to see what you were scribbling. <laughs> so when I lived in Heidelberg and I commuted to Frankfurt to get my head shrunk, um, I did a lot of writing on the train. It was one hour each way. Okay. And it was, it was wonderful writing on the train. Has it changed as you've got older? One of, one of the things that the poem Dear Keats made me think about was, it made me think about the difference between that writer and the writer you are today about. Well, that's interesting. You know, the ability to write is going down into the unconscious and not censoring what comes out and getting it down on the page, a lot of which you'll later throw away, but you have to have that ability to go down into the unconscious and scribble what comes up. Now, what comes up is not all beautiful or you know, publishable, but you, you have to be able to go there in order to write. Does that get easier or more difficult when you were writing Fear of Dying rather than Fear of Flying? That was the... You have to reclaim that ability in order to write. And you don't write it raw as it comes up. I mean, you scribble notes to yourself. You have a notebook with ideas and images. And then when you sit down to write, you don't always use the raw material but the raw material takes you there. I mean, it's very important to be able to go down into the unconscious and find the stuff that truly motivates. You're not going to show it all, but you're going to use it as a pathway to take you where you need to go. Are there times you just don't want to have to do that, that excavation of, of, of your deepest feelings that it's again- in Absolutely. Both I mean, there's some writer who says, a wonderful quote, and I can't even remember who said it. There is writing and not writing. And it's always a question of which one will win. <laughs> I can't remember who said that, but it's true. I mean, when you're writing, you often want to escape. You know, go out, meet a friend, have a drink, have a coffee, and uh, get away from it because it's it's so solitary and it can be painful. The only thing I think that saved me is that I'm funny and ironic. And even when I'm at my worst, I can say, oh my God, this is ridiculous. And that gets you what back from the the very brink of, of whatever it is that you're that you're facing in that moment. Yeah, it's really wonderful to have a sense of humor. If you have a sense of humor, you won't be Sylvia Plath. I love her, her writing, and it was a great um, door opener for me. She allowed us to, to write hate, to write fear. She inspired that, but she took it all terribly seriously in the end. Is that perhaps what you're referring to in your poem, Depression in, in Early Spring? You, you talk about Berryman jumping from the bridge and waving all the dreamers dead of their own dreams. That, that there's something about that, that most intense kind of poetry, perhaps, that costs too much. 
Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, the whole romanticization of suicide by poets, beginning with Keats, really, dying young, leaving a myth, that's ridiculous. I mean, of course, one feels that way in youth. But as you get older, you realize that the biggest courage is living, not dying. Is that one of the things that if you were writing Dear Keats today, that you might write that, that is a different perspective that age has given you? Absolutely. I mean, it's much more brave to continue to embrace life, which is always full of problems and full of things that you really have to go through that change you. Losing people you love, losing your parents, losing friends, confronting death and loss. I used to be terrified all the time that I would go away on a trip and learn that my grandparents or one of them was gone because they were very important in my life and helped raise me. My grandfather was a painter and my grandmother was the greatest cook in the world whose recipes I never learned because I was such a feminist and I didn't want to cook. <laughs> the fear of loss. And then you do lose them and you have to deal with it. Um, I mean, I've spent a lot of this year partly because of work, but partly because of, of this illness and of thinking about Keats tra traveling to Italy with this disease. H how have you coped with, with this, this year? It's this great for writing. <laughs> Never leaving the house. <laughs> and then really that's a writer's life anyway you know, living in your study, living in your dreams, living in your fantasies. Very important. I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. And I've only begun to realize how fortunate. I, I've always been with um, men who admired my writing and cared about it. I have a daughter who's become a writer. And it looks like my granddaughter has the disease oh, no. <laughs> that is writing all the time, writing stories, writing poems, writing everything. Max, my eldest grandson, seems to have the disease. <laughs> and uh, Darwin, my middle grandson, is an amazing talker, never shuts up. I think he might might become a politician. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, well, just because he can never shut up and he has theories of everything. Okay. Either a politician or possibly a philosopher. <laughs> Who knows? Are you excited by, to see the back of your president? Um, Who? Your president. You mean Trump? Yeah. He never was my president. Okay. <laughs> I always thought he was a fool and a grifter. Everything is about making money for him and no empathy for anybody else. And all he wants is to get money. I have no, no respect for Trump. I read, I think it was an interview, um, because poetry exists outside of some of the commercial, many of the commercial propulsions of the modern world it, it has a kind of freedom is that perhaps one of the sort of thing that maybe we should be taking a bit of time in our life 
to get outside. It feels like a very commercial moment, very high capitalist moment. Absolutely. You know, poetry is pure because you can't make any money writing it. (laughs) And publishers don't want to publish it because they can't make any money. Corporations like money. They don't care about feelings. And so as publishing becomes more and more corporate, they just don't give a damn. And as a result, new little publishing houses are starting. They will be the giants of the future, but that doesn't do writers today any good, what they will be in the future. But in a way, there's a kind of purity in in literary work because nobody wants it. Would you have been happy with that kind of success? Would you have been happy being a poet? Would I do that? No. I had a great drive to influence people and particularly influence women to demand their, their full share of life and art. That is why I wrote novels because novels are more the, the language of the world than poetry. Poetry is not the language of the world. Occasionally, a phrase of yours gets picked up. No, poetry is kind of delving deep into the unconscious, and it can help people realize they're not freaks, and they are human beings, and it can be a great comfort to people, especially in times of loss. You know, when do people turn to poetry? Mm. When a baby is born or a loved one dies. In the the deepest moments of our life, we turn to poetry. And that's a great thing. But the language of every day is not poetry. Who do you turn to? Which poets would help you with, with, with loss? I learned a lot from Robert Lowell, a lot. And I learned a lot from Sylvia Plath, who learned from Robert Lowell. And I learned a lot from Anne Sexton, who also learned a lot from Lowell because she became a confessional poet. She was also a friend of mine. And we corresponded and we spent time together in New York when she came to New York. I was very lucky when I was a young writer that there were some older writers who I had loved and admired who became friends. We run a, an annual prize. We The last few years we started one for, for poets and, and prose writers aged between 16 and, and 18 who are I guess the sort of age when you discovered Keats, who were writing very intense, wonderful, some brilliant poems. If you had advice for very young writers, whether they wanted to write novels or or to write poems, we call them the young romantics. What advice would would you give someone? Carry your notebook and write in it as much as possible. And uh, go back and read the stuff that you thought was shit and see what you find there. It's compost for what you will write. Compost is essential to growing things. And even if it's not perfect, it may be 
the soil out of which other things will grow. Don't be too self-critical. Never show your work to your family. <laughs> Ever. Uh, well, I don't know. You can't always keep it from them. But I made a very bad mistake once. There was a friend of my younger sister's who worked for me as a typist. And of course, she typed many of my early poems because I tend to scrawl on yellow legal pads and then have someone else type them, partly because I don't want to censor myself. Okay. And this friend of my, my sister's went to my family and said, you wouldn't believe what Erica's writing. <laughs> and she really quoted a lot of the stuff and people became very angry. So watch out for that. Did it ever dissuade you that sense that someone close to you might read some of those poems? Look, I grew up in a, in a household absolutely full of books. My mother was an artist, but she wrote poetry when she was young. My father was a businessman, but he wrote songs when he was young. The house was full of books. Everybody was always quoting uh, writers they loved. I couldn't keep this stuff away from them. <laughs> so I took the heat. And then as time went by and I became well-known, they didn't disown me. They never disown you when you're well-known. <laughs> if you can just get to that point, they'll forgive you anything. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I really don't know. I, I think it's important to have the courage to go down into the unconscious and find what is really obsessing you and to have a notebook and to jot things down not everything becomes a poem, but at least it gives you a sense of what you're obsessed with, what you care about on a deep level. Lately in my life, I've had a wonderful relationship with a poet who lives on the other coast, who lives in California. Uh, her name is Kim Dower. We met and we began exchanging poems and she would write a poem and I would write an answer. And if I'm wandering around and doing something else or writing prose and I get a poem from Kim, I sit down and sink into it and think about it. And it always brings another poem. So it's wonderful if you have a poet friend you can send things to. I, I heartily recommend it because when you're not in the mood for writing and you get a note, from your poet friend on the other coast. You just have to sit down and write. We're thinking a lot over the next few months about Keats's epitaph, Here Lies One Whose Name Was Written Water. In Dear Keats, there's a very, a very nice line, which is, our names are written newsprint if not in water. I, I don't know if you remember writing that line. Um, oh, sure I do. <laughs> well, you know, we don't get the critics we deserve, anybody, and we have to learn to be indifferent to criticism. Our names are written in newsprint. I mean, the most ridiculous things have been written about me during my career. 
you know, you would think from reading the criticism about me that I was an infomaniac because I wrote honestly about women and sexuality. Um, I am not an infomaniac. I'm actually quite monogamous, but that's not the image of me. But who cares? You know, you have to believe in yourself, not in the public image of yourself. And the public image of yourself will never be who you are. Never. I mean, if you look at the public image of Keats, for example, you know, the sensualist, lowly person who had no right to be a sensualist because he was not aristocratic. I mean, for goodness sakes. Byron was okay, you know, because he was of the nobility. But Keats was a common, a common person who studied medicine. <laughs> if, if you could write your own newsprint, what would you like your legacy to be? What, what would you like to be remembered for? I can't even imagine. I mean, I've written obituaries for writers that I loved, like Miro Rukeyser, Anne Sexton, who was another friend. I guess I would like people to recognize that I went beyond fear, that I felt the fear, but I didn't allow it to stop me. Because that's something writers always deal with. If I write this, will everyone hate me? Will I be arrested? Will I be censored? You know, writers are very inward looking people and they're alone too much. And so fear can overtake them. If I would like to be remembered for anything, it would be feel the fear, but don't let it stop you. Every creative person is of necessity fearful because we don't know what's going to come out, right? And we don't know if it's worthy or not. And we don't know if we're worthy or not. But we have to be risk takers. That's a very important thing for for young writers to know. Anything new, anything bold will be questioned, but that's good. Be bold, be new, confront the fear. I think that's a fantastic thing. The, 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 one of our themes is adversity, actually. And I, I think using Keats's example of how do you push through those those terrifying moments, the moment that tells you to, to not do something. But, you know, it's so important for young writers mm. to know that, that everybody feels that way, that creativity is that fear. Sometimes I know I'm writing something good because I'm terrified. And those are the things that people single out as having helped them interesting it's not so easy to confront yourself and if a writer can help with that my god what a service we provide is that something that the the poets like keats and have done for you That's absolutely i mean absolutely keats was very very important he had to have courage to go on Thank you so much for giving me your time. It's been the biggest pleasure to talk to you. 
Thank you so much. Thank what a you. pleasure to be interviewed by you. Thank you for listening to the Keat Shelley podcast. This podcast is hosted by James Kidd. The music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Zabriskie. Visit chriszabriskie.com. You can hear more episodes and also subscribe to the podcast by visiting our homepage, keatshelley.podbean.com. You can support the Keat Shelley House by becoming a friend of the Keat Shelley Memorial Association. Visit keatshelley.org and click support us.